can I, in a very brief period of time, convey the message, especially to medical students, that their personal interactions are paramount, even if something feels inconsequential, because we need to be very supportive of each other in medical school. It's a, it's a, um, a difficult arena psychologically. And so here I have this group of people just getting to know one another really, not really wanting to participate in what I would like them to do. And so it's a long-winded way of saying, what is your relationship with the people you spend time with? Are you ready for this inaugural episode of the Health Raisers podcast? Today, my guest is Linda Lang, certified yoga therapist with an eight-year career at the George Washington University Center for Integrative Medicine, who continues to serve the medical community as a clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. There is no doubt in my mind that you know or love a healthcare provider struggling to take care of themselves. Compassionate caregivers deserve care too. Tune in and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear this message. So the first thing I wanted to really uh, focus on really is speaking about the genesis of your work with medical professionals. And the reason why I'm very curious about that as someone who practiced many years ago, I wish I had had a resource like you at that time. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you found your way into this work with people who may not necessarily be receptive or aware of the idea of self-care and specifically yoga? How I got into this is, a, is an easy question to answer. I had a marvelous student for many years who, along with her husband, started one of the first centers for integrative medicine at an academic institution in the United States, Catherine Pan, and her husband, John, who is an obstetrician, retired now, I think, lived in the same community as I did. And at one point after class one day, Catherine asked me if I might like to come downtown and meet the staff. And I said, what staff? And I found myself just off the campus of George Washington University with a very unique team, multifaceted team of professionals at the Center for Integrative Medicine that they started there. This was in 2008. They had already worked with yoga teachers, instructors who were not at that point calling themselves yoga therapists. So I walked through the door and started working with their patients in a clinical setting and sometimes in the patients' homes because there really wasn't room. There were tiny, <laughs> tiny office and tiny office spaces uh, to work with people. And so over time, I would visit with people in their homes once or twice a week, teaching them yoga practices specific to the diagnoses that they received at the clinic, the center. And of course, that's, that's in the world of yoga, that's, I don't want to call it the tip of an iceberg, but it's, it's one way to look at an individual is, is um, symptomatically, but because a yoga therapy, a yoga teacher is not a diagnostician and we're not medically trained, um, we look through a yogic lens and might look at a diagnosis 
and the symptoms leading up to it and reach different conclusions as to what might be good for a person um, or adjunct therapies, you might call them. So that's how I got involved with the Center for Integrative Medicine. And then the beauty of that is because it was part of George Washington University Medical School, we had medical students and residents coming through the center. A couple of students told one of the directors that they wanted to teach yoga to patients in clinical settings while they were still in in medical school. They got directed to me. The second time we offered yoga as a therapeutic modality at the medical school, over 72 students pre-registered. And the classes, the medical school classes at the time were only about 130, 140 students each year. So in first and second year students, we had a a large percentage of, of people very interested in understanding what yoga had to do with modern medicine. So do you think if the medical students hadn't sort of already had a little bit of an introduction because they were in the same program that you would have been able to capture their interest otherwise? I think if there had not been an integrative medicine track at this medical school, and it was there primarily because of the philanthropic (laughs) engagement of this particular couple, um, I would not have had the opportunity to be heard because there was a, a lecture series at lunchtime where I taught And in order to be in this integrative track or to be introduced to the integrative track, the the medical students had to attend all of the the lunch programs. And then once a year, there was, you know this, the wellness day when the medical school says, we're going to talk about wellness and self-care for one day. And this is it. And, And so that's also where I got to, to work with the students. At first it was uh, one-on-one and I mean, um, year by year and small groups within them. And then because the impact was so great, I started working with them in plenary groups on those days, which was very compelling. I would love to start diving into a couple of experiences from your standpoint with medical students who might have been recalcitrant to try yoga and then discovered something about it that changed their minds in order to keep going to sustain a practice and maybe some other experiences where it might have been different, where there was more familiarity with the concept of yoga. And so it was an, an easier transition for those students. And I, I think I'll actually add a third, maybe a little bit of ambivalence. So can you talk about some specific stories and experiences from those three standpoints? Yes. Um, I also want to go back because part of the first question, as I understand it, was what made what, what do I think made the students change their minds? And I would say it's not their minds that were changed. It was their lives. Mm. Where after one of these required sessions, I'll, I'll give you the specific example. I'll, I'll be as succinct as I can. Imagine being in a room with uh, your cohort. You're a first year student. 
it's your second month of classes and you have to attend a lecture and um, a woman comes into the room who looks like she could be your grandmother and starts talking to you about yoga and and it's an interactive experiential thing. And some of your peers are really into it because they love it. You, you don't want to be in the room. And one of the exercises, because yoga is all about relationship, all about relationship, I have people introduce themselves to one another very early on. I do this in almost every class I've, I've ever taught, regardless of where I am. And so there's this not just reluctance, but it's, oh God, you know, do we have to do this? And so they shake hands with each other. And I can tell the people who are ambivalent and reluctant and the people who say, hey, you know, they love each other and they're having a great experience. And those are the yoga students. And then they kind of look at me and say, okay, we did it. And I, and I say, well, uh, I appreciate your indulging me. Now, I would like you to introduce yourself to the same person again, as if they are running a clinic that you are desperate to work in. You've graduated from medical school. You are finishing your residency. You're looking for employment. And you have this one opportunity to meet someone who may grant you the opportunity for your dreams, your professional dreams to come true. And they looked at each other and the energy in the room went to a very different place. And, and they didn't want to stop talking when it was time to change and go, you know, sort of change partners. And I asked them what happened, what was different. And it was the way they see one another, the way they relate to one another. And, and we started talking mm. about the choices we make in relationships with each other and how that makes us feel, how that makes the other person feel, what it is to be understood. And so when you ask me about yoga and how people feel about it, it's like, what part of yoga? The asana practice, the breathing mm. practice, struggling with meditation, feeling like it's all work? Or can I, in a very brief period of time, convey the message, especially to medical students, that their personal interactions are paramount, even if something feels inconsequential, because we need to be very supportive of each other in medical school. It's a, it's a, um, a difficult arena psychologically. And so here I have this group of people just getting to know one another really not really wanting to participate in what I would like them to do. And so it's a long-winded way of saying, what is your relationship with the people you spend time with? I love this. Okay, two things here. My experience going into medical school, and I know I wasn't alone, this is pretty common, is to go in with a sense of competition. And even if you don't go in necessarily with a cutthroat mission, you still made it to medical school and you had to fight your way in for your place. So I find it interesting that you would be able to say to these people in this mindset that may be so programmed and deep of competition and survival and needing to fight to maintain a place and to continue the fight to secure future places it's interesting that you would ask them to consider having genuine, deeper, yes. meaningful relationships with one another to support one another. So that's one thing that is giving me pause. And the second thing, so I'd like you to talk about that a little bit more before we dive into the experiences. Good. And then I also find as a yoga teacher myself that a lot of people think of yoga 
in our Western world as asana, purely asana, and the other things is maybe ancillary. Oh, and you might breathe or you might do meditation or relaxation. These things are separate. They're not all yoga. So can you address both reflections, please? I can. In yoga, you know the word japa in Sanskrit. Japa is repetition. And in order for someone to really be able to internalize the messages, it takes repetition. You know, I mean, that's one of the definitions of learning is, is repetition with determination. And so in order to get that across to people, that's one of the reasons that I teach the way I do right off the bat. Um, I need people to understand if you're going to truly appreciate how easily you can make life better for yourself. It's your worldview. It's how you feel about yourself. It's how you move through space. It's how you carry yourself through life. And it takes being willing to learn and not being limited. So now you've gotten into that realm of self-limiting thought. And that's another conversation. More to the point, though, the dialogue that you're referring to and the nature of engagement and really having genuine relationships with people, part of the example that I wanted these youngsters to experience is how they behave when they want something from someone else, how differently they present themselves when they want to be taken seriously, when they want to be impressive, when they want to be memorable for all of the right reasons, and they want something. And that's a big part of medicine also, is how do I get what I want? How do I become the teacher's darling? How do I become the dean's favorite student of the year? How do I become you know, president of, of my class? Or how do I network myself from the very beginning? And so there's the personal side of things, and then there's the professional side of things. And as a young person, still in their 20s, Identity is such a huge issue here. And so everything that we're talking about are identity issues. And as you were talking about survival skills. So if the first question is, how does yoga become a desired activity by someone who is reluctant or ambivalent, it has to be packaged in a way that they're ready to receive it. It's, I mean, think of it as a present. Somebody sends you a present, they're not in the room, you open it, it's like, oh God, you put it away. You know, you might not even send them a note and say, hey, I got that, uh, I got your present. <laughs> Thanks for thinking of me. Um, it's, or you send something and it arrives at just the right moment and the telephone rings and the person says, oh my God, that's just what I needed. So after working with medical students for a short period of time and identifying with myself pretty strongly still as remembering what it was like in my 20s, what I wanted was to be involved in a way that I felt understood and valued and cared for. And within your yoga practice, Nadine, as you know, self-care gets defined as our capacity to meet our own unmet needs. Mm. So for a medical student who's frequently running on empty, how many ways can a yoga teacher <laughs> help that individual fill up on the good stuff? 
And then for medical professionals, once, once you're in the field and, and you're working hard, how do you keep yourself from running on empty? This is a wonderful segue. You're talking about what yoga is and what I'm hearing is how yoga can evolve in different life stages. So can you talk a little bit about that? How yoga can evolve in different life stages. Yoga defines that for us. It tells us that there are different stages in our lives. One is being a child. Being a child is being cared for, (laughs) Um, learning, growing, experiencing. And I'm going to add in a component of innocence. Children are innocent, one hopes. And then there are the years of a studentship um, where one is dedicated to learning something in specific. Um, And you're very engaged in the world and lots of relationships and, and life takes on a very different dimension and you start taking care of yourself and you might call that a period of uh, supported no, how do I call it? Supported independence. When, when you're still a student, because somebody else is still taking care of you and you're not responsible for yourself yet. Then you, are, you become, in, in the yogic uh, terms, a householder. You have your job, you have your relationships, you maintain your home, you, you have whatever family life fits your lifestyle, and there you are, and you create a life of meaning. And you are independent and I dare say have begun to negotiate your way through life with what I call informed innocence. And the final stage, um, at least in the West and and also in, in the East in terms of aging, is retirement. Or when the years of being a householder end. And it's time to take a look around and figure out, as my dad would say, you're in the fourth quarter and you know how do you want to play the game and you know the fourth quarter for a lot of people is is another 20 or 25 years and that's long enough to create another career mm-hmm. in the yogic context by the time you reach the fourth stage of life it's time to go into the forest and find out who you are so we reach a point in life where we are no longer so much responsible for other people and maybe we turn our awareness inward, paravritta, we, we turn our thinking inward to discover who we really are, what we really want. And so a child's yoga practice is going to be full of playfulness, mindfulness, self-inquiry, and getting along with friends and being a good family member. As a student, you learn to focus and to achieve and to set your goals and, and claim your standards. And then you become your householder. And there's a different dynamic that's a geometric exponent of all of that. And then you can make choices. And your yoga practice takes you through each stage, um, helping you to build greater strength where you need strength, accept your weaknesses without condemning yourself or being self-deprecating. Um, and ultimately... I'm going to say inviting us into a relationship with a world that's more mystical, that has more metaphysical experiences because of, out of desire. Things don't have to be so finite and tied to timetables and deadlines. Yoga will support whatever you need in your life. I haven't found one 
space where yogic thinking or actions weren't applicable and desirable. So let's start with a thinker, an intellectual, believes in science and science-based evidence. And you come into a class and you start talking to that medical student. What, what has happened there in your experience? Well, students are very surprised. Um, sometimes I take in a, a wrist cuff to measure blood pressure and have people do certain things where they know they're going to build up their blood pressure and increase their heart rate. And they can notice that the, their breathing has changed. Then I have them do uh, an inversion and that they notice what happens. We talk about um, the baroreceptors in the, in the neck and, and we talk about anatomy and physiology. And I go very quickly. If, if someone says, um, I'm scientific, prove it to me. I, I'm not, yeah, qualitatively, sure, I felt better after class, but quantitatively, you know, how do we know? And there's so much research on this. Many years ago, I ran a program at the Smithsonian called Yoga, the Art and Science of Transformation. So, oh, and I'm so glad you asked me that question. I have with me a book called The Principles, Practices of Yoga in Healthcare. And this is full of the hard facts and the research. I've got another one um, called Surgery and Its Alternatives. There's a plethora of research. So I have taught classes. Um, I've taught classes on um, biophysiology. I've taught classes on the pathophysiology of heart disease. I've taught classes on Alzheimer's prevention um, based on research that's been done. So if you need to know, Nadine, if it's worth your time and energy, if it's really going to make a difference, you know, I can provide you with the science but I can also provide you with the science on statins and cholesterol levels. And I can ask you what makes the science of that relevant when a person can run with cholesterol at, of, of 399 or 499 and have a cardiac calcium score of zero. So tell me about the science that you're talking about, I want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. If you want me to tell you the ways that we can evaluate and measure, I can talk about evaluation and measurement. I'd rather you not talk to me about the science or ask me if I believe the science. Thank you. Well, well said. I am a first year medical student and I just don't have one opinion one way or the other about this yoga thing. What do you, what do you have to tell me? One of the things I'll tell you, um, quite frankly, is about Dean Ornish, who was a medical student, who lost hope, who became filled with despair, whose sister <laughs> studied yoga um, with Swami Satyadananda and said, said, Dean, come to a yoga class with me. And Dean said, I don't want to. Well, I'm depressed. I don't want to do anything. Leave me alone. And she said, well, just talk to my guru. And he said, no, I don't want to talk to your guru. And, and he really was blue. He was, he was um, I, I think it's probably fair to say that he was suicidal. And he lived in Dallas. And Swami Satchidananda just happened to be in Dallas and just happened to get invited to the Ornish's house and said, Dean, come live with me in my ashram. 
I think a yogic way of life might help you. And reluctantly, he went. And, and if you don't know about Dean Ornish, then I would tell you, I, I would hand you my, my five Dean Ornish books and, and I would say, listen to his videos and try it on. As a medical student, you put on your white coat your first day of school. I want you to try yoga on the same way you tried on that white coat. I want you to do breathing exercises. I want you to find your way to a yoga mat and do the movements. I want you to do it with a group of people who are enjoying themselves. I want you to try not to be competitive. Hmm. I would tell you that. I would also probably lead you to um, some very interesting studies on how physicians experience a refined quality of life when they embrace yogic practices. You need something. And the yoga community and the yogic practices will, will not let you down. Beautiful. Okay, another perspective. I am receptive to this. I can't wait to do yoga. How am I going to sustain it? Why do you have the expectation that you would not sustain it, number one, and you're breathing, savor that moment. So just breathe in and pause at the top of that breath and exhale for longer than you just breathed in. If you want to fully embrace a yoga practice, start there. You are always practicing. In the Upanishads, there's a very wonderful Upanishad called the Hamsa Upanishad. And it's about um, the wings of a great of a great bird. You breathe in, so ham, you breathe out, hamsa. Hamsa means swan, but it's also a mantra that means I am this, that I am. How many times a minute do you breathe? How many times a day? A week, a year? Look at your yoga practice as <laughs> um, irresistible and all-encompassing. Try not to make it separate. Try not to make it difficult. I spoke to someone earlier today and he said, I'm going to work, have to work so hard at this. I'm such a beginner. And I said, and he said, it's going to take me so long to get there. And all I said was, where is there? And I think it's here and you're already here. So with a Western mindset, this is going to be hard. It's going to take forever. I'm going to have to sustain it. So the first thing you learn is be kind to yourself. Be compassionate. Don't deprive yourself. Don't take away the opportunity to be comfortable within your practice. So part of my answer to your question is take your yoga practices seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously in the practice. The practice is always there. The practice is always there. It's the most uncommon thing. And, and people say, why do you minimize it? Why do you make it so easy? Because it doesn't feel so important. Well, I don't know where you learned that. Breathe, soften, breathe, soften more deeply. Deep healing takes place with a body that is deeply relaxed, soften. Don't be so hard on yourself. Believe it or not, there are yoga teachers 
They're yoga masters. They're gurus. They don't spend time on a yoga mat. There are branches of yoga that people don't do asana. Their yoga is sound. Their yoga is silence. Their yoga is volunteerism. Their yoga is, is religious, you know? So thank you for asking that question. How will I sustain it? If that's your question, you will disappoint yourself. Time and again, you'll say, oh, man, I didn't practice this week. Oh, I didn't. Uh, well, of course not, because you're human. And unless you're a rare human with extreme discipline, um, your idea of sustaining it is going to shift. So being a perfectionist, you ask that as a perfectionist. Or a devotee who has the desire to have a daily practice, then I would say create a practice that you can sustain. Who says you have to do anything a certain way? Oh, I get up at four o'clock every morning and I practice my yoga for an hour and a half and then I chant for half an hour and then I meditate for an hour. No, not everybody does that. So you custom fit your yoga practice to fit who you are. And and I call it yoga as lifestyle medicine. It's your lifestyle. Mm, I completely agree. I've asked you so many questions and I've received so much wisdom and insight. Are you curious about anything? I am. You represent one of a very, let's put it this way, of a growing group of women in particular who I know who have been physicians. And it was not enough. Whether they did not feel that they were enough as a doctor, I don't know. But I am meeting more and more women who are leaving traditional medicine and moving into yogic practices. So as someone who practiced medicine (laughs) and is now living life very differently, I would like you to tell me whether or not there would have been a way that yogic perspectives might have made it possible for you to continue to practice in a way that was sustainable. You have probably asked me one of the most difficult questions I have encountered on my show. That is not an easy answer. And when I let myself think that way, what if with a, through a lens of regret, I feel I almost do myself a dis- an injustice. You said it earlier being ready, being given a gift. Yes. I don't think I was in the right frame of mind to receive any gift at that time. Mm-hmm. It might have helped me physically. I might have looked at it. I don't think I would have been able to let go of it as a way to help me survive physically through what through my training. I don't think I would have been open enough at that time to Mm. open up my heart and my emotions and my mind to make yoga more than a physical practice. I don't think I had the emotional maturity 
I know I didn't. Mm. I didn't have the curiosity. I know I didn't. I was purely wearing blinders and I had to make it. There was only one way forward. And so, and also at the same time, don't want to regret, have any regrets. And I don't because I wouldn't be this person today. I wouldn't have evolved as a wife, a family member, a friend, a mother. I wouldn't have found my way. I would not have evolved into what the correct career path and sustainable career path and evolving career path for me looks like. What is it? What did it really mean for me to take care of people and help people? It just wasn't happening for me in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in in medicine, mm-hmm. and I had to find my way. But I wouldn't have known that I had to find my way without stumbling a lot first and know and really experiencing why this is why medicine was not for me in the long run. Mm-hmm. And and that's that sort of comes under the the rubric of informed innocence. You know, I have had medical students who. By the time they reach the end of their third year, get into the rotations, moving into fourth year, have written me and said, Linda, why didn't you tell me it was going to be so hard? And I do <laughs> tell the students <laughs> that it's going to be hard and that they need soft skills. And I think that's what you're referring to is that no one taught you the soft survival skills. And the other piece, as I was listening to you, reminded me, I've, I have, uh, it's been a while now, but I, I used to at least twice a year um, go to res- in-town residence retreats. And um, I was always the last speaker <laughs> at the end of the day. And um, so it's like, oh no, you know, oh yoga. And half of the room was like, oh boy, can we do headstands? And the other part of the room was, oh, I don't, uh, I have to go to the bathroom now. And, and so that was always an interesting group. And, and everyone always, and I underline everyone always ended up having a meaningful experience because there were always a handful of men, young men in their late 20s who would sit there defiantly with their hands crisscrossed. And I would would just say, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, lie on the floor with your legs up the wall. And and so um, that experience and also one other one working with residents um, we were doing a, a class outside one day and and I, this one fellow I hadn't met before and I asked um, if he could sit, talk a little bit about why he was present in the group. There were six other other residents and he's, he was from a Middle Eastern country. Um, he says, you know, I just don't do support group things. Um, but my friends here said, please come, please come. And he looked at his friends and he looked at me and he said, I'm here because I am so alone. I have not had a hug. <laughs> I have not had a warm conversation. You know, he's, he's a resident, it's his first year resident. 
And, and he said, so I came here because tired of being alone. And so the dynamic of the group shifted to how we are all alone and what it takes to be seen and understood in an environment where there's a sense that I can be everyone, everything that I am unapologetically. And these people who I've been studying with now for almost a year haven't a clue of how much unhappiness I've been carrying. So whether it's a yoga class <laughs> um, or a mindfulness program or a peer counseling program, Nadine, I am I'm saddened when I see people matriculate through and go through all the rites of passage to become a physician and become one and find it empty. It makes me sad because the effort is so huge and the personal cost is so dear. I don't know of any other profession, you know, dentists included, you know, anyone who goes through medical training, you're not the same when you come out the other end unless, unless you have reinforcement and encouragement and companionship. Hmm. Thank you. So that's one question I have. <laughs> um, and and I, I would have others uh, because one of the questions I would have for you and any of your listeners who happen to be, be physicians, my question is how can we, people like you and I, Nadine, how can your listeners and their yoga teachers, or if you're a yoga teacher, you're, you and your physician friends, how can we show up at medical conferences as presenters, as partners, to teach the medical community that there already are collegial, intraprofessional engagements? where there are people on the soft side, people like me, who have a deep understanding of the human body, of the human mind, of the human heart, without the medical overlay, who have the capacity to teach medical professionals together. I think this is something really important to think about. So I'm, I'm going to leave that there for our, my listeners to consider. Good. I'm, I've been putting together something called the Physicians Advocacy Council for Therapeutic Yoga, hoping to build partnerships um, community by community across the United States or around the world at this point, um, so that people like you and I can do justice. I will put all of this information in, in the show notes. And I just cannot thank you enough. I am so very grateful for this conversation. And as we draw to a close, I have a question I ask everyone, and I am really intrigued to hear how you will answer this. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy, Linda? My personal definition of what it is to be healthy. You heard that breath. It's a, it's a very important question to ask because there's the physical body, in the emotional body, 
spiritual body. And they're inextricable. So for me, the question has to do what is health or is health. It's a vibrancy. It's a vitality. It's a worldview. It's a way of being in relationship with the unknown and the unknowable. Where the world is filled with discovery, not diagnoses. That was unbelievable. My heart is full. Welcome to Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive, together we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. We thrive in community. We are not in isolation from one another. We are completely interconnected and interdependent. Community is not one group serving another, or not even everybody working together. It's seeing the good in yourself within community and seeing the good of the others within the community. It doesn't take anything away from me to be able to encourage somebody else Mm. and vice versa. We thrive in our bodies. My value is that I want to age with strength and be able to have the most quality of life for the longest amount of time. That's my driver. You have to have an intimate relationship with yourself first and foremost. Never mind your husband or your wife or partner or whatever. It starts here. So one thing is it's good for our brain's physical health to get to sleep. Second, memories consolidate and sleep. Mm-hmm. It's really important to identify what makes your body function at an optimal level. Mm-hmm. The way we do that is being very sensitive to the foods we eat and how we feel afterwards. We thrive in our minds. We make ourselves such low priorities that unless it's obvious, we don't take care of it ourselves. We are socially and culturally conditioned to avoid self-care, and it's wrong. Years later, lots of therapy, lots of other things, I have now learned to be able to say, like, everybody doesn't have to be your friend at the same level. Um, It's certainly Mm -hmm. a, a... Quality versus quantity. What do you want? Why do you want it? We thrive in our spirits. Fear and faith can't occupy the same frequency. I am nature and nature is me. And you can't separate it. There is a power in me to choose my journey. And if I want to choose my journey, I have to cultivate my soul. We thrive in our intellect. Better beats perfect every time. And so I think I think the mistakes are beautiful because it gives us a reason to get up and push for something and grow and, and, and find a new level of ourself. Variety is important in your daily life because it's really good for your brain. And we thrive in our emotions. There's something about common experience that creates a deep, loving community. You will serve others better when you meet your own needs. You can serve from an empty vessel, but you will be angry, Mm -hmm. frustrated, very unhappy, and Mm -hmm. that comes through in your interactions with other people. The more agreeable we are, the more likely we are to forgive. I think kindness is a way of somebody conveying to us that our dignity matters to them. Come join this health revolution. Bring your whole self to your whole life.